An ordinance is just a word. It just means a prescribed ceremony and observance. They were given to us by Jesus. I don't, I don't uh, assume that you know all the things that go on and why we do what we do. So from time to time, we take uh, a few minutes before our time in the Word to talk about communion, to talk about why we do it and, and why it's important and some of the things the Scripture has to say about it. Today will be one of those times. Jesus is the head of the church. We know that um, he gave us these things to do. And he told the church in Ephesus in chapter 1, verse 22, he said he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things the church, which is his body. Again, Colossians 1, 18, much the same. He told the church he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So he gets to say what goes on in the body, and that makes sense, doesn't it? If he says it's supposed to go on in the body, then we're supposed to do it. If he says not to do it, then we don't do it. There's no really negotiation there in that respect because it is his body and he's the head. And so when we come together for either of these two things, as with all things we do here in particular, though, communion, first of all, we recognize the presence of Christ, don't we? Matthew 28, 20, after he gave them the Great Commission, he said To his disciples, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So when we pray, do we need to say, Lord, be with us? We say that often, don't we? That's kind of a habit that we've gotten into. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. So maybe a better way to pray would be to say, Lord, make us aware of your presence, because it's objectively here, right? Not whether I feel like it or not, not whether I like it or not, not whether I think he is here. We know for sure that he is, and he said he'll be with us to the end of the age. He promised to be with all his disciples through all time. Those who obey his commands, Jesus said in John 14, 23, he makes his abode with them. You obey Jesus' commands, he's that unseen guest wherever you go. Isn't that great? So he's everywhere present, and yet he's also promised to be with us, especially as we gather As believers. In Matthew 18, verse 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their where? Midst. We've said before the Lord's Supper is an act of worship, like much that went on here before, right? We we lifted up worship in music, we lift up worship in prayer. I hope you lifted up worship in giving. It's all part of the act of worship, especially as the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. It can be a particularly fruitful opportunity for meeting with him it's a time of a relationship it's a time of closeness with christ we can come to the lord's supper confident that we will meet with him because he's promised to meet with us christ is not present in the elements i'm not sure what your background may be either by the elements being his actual body and blood or by the elements taking on the characteristics of his body and blood But he has promised to be present with us as we commemorate his death, which is what we're going to do. And by identifying with that death and the taking of the elements, from a fellowship standpoint, we we have the potential for a closer relationship with him. Because, beloved, you are in, aren't you? From a positional standpoint, you've been justified. From a relational standpoint, but from a practical standpoint, we walk in the world, don't we? So when we come into the church, we want to wash, don't we? We want to... We want to lift up praise. We want to ask for forgiveness. We want to get to the point where we can be fed and we can respond. And this is one of those times that we we do that. He's promised to meet with us. He's promised to be present as we commemorate his death. 
It's not a subjective encounter either. It's not whether or not we, we feel like he's here, he's objectively present. And the Holy Spirit is capable of making him real in our experience, no question. As we submit to his commands and, and do what he says, uh, the Lord says he abode, his abode is with those who do that. So the Lord's Supper is the time we're given uh, an opportunity to draw close to Christ. That's what we want to do. And thus come to know him better, to love him more. And, and again, we do that when we come together for communion. So we, we celebrate the presence of Christ. We also recognize the benefits of the ordinance. And this really is connected to 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, a passage we read every time we take the cup and, and the bread. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread of, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat the bread and drink the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly, but for this reason, many among you are weak and, and sick and a number sleep. You need to advance that for me, please, back there. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned with the world. And so in the context of that verse, we call attention to these issues during the communion of service. And this is important, probably the most important thing. We're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Because obviously, from the content of the Apostle Paul's statement, there's nothing automatic about the benefit Did you catch that? There's nothing automatic about the benefit of closeness with the Lord as we celebrate the table. Many in the Corinthian church participated in the Lord's Supper, but instead of being spiritually edified, had become what? Sick and weak, and some had even died. So the value then intended by the Lord with the table wasn't being realized in those cases, which is why Paul wrote this section of the letter. The effect of the Lord's Supper for them was dependent on or in proportion to the faith response of the believer and their response to what was being presented in the ordinance. And the same is true today. If they desire a closer walk with the Lord, there's going to need to be an opportunity for self-examination and a short sin list, an awareness of sin, and a confession of it if they want that benefit. And just like if we desire to know Him better and to love Him more, and an occasion of recommitment of oneself to the Lord, which is all part of that, then there must be an appropriate response by faith. And we're going to look at some examples of that in just a moment. And again, as we come together for communion, we recognize the presence of Christ, we recognize the benefit of the ordinance, and thirdly, we should understand uh, the importance of the Lord's Supper as we think about it in the life of the believer. A correct understanding of the Lord's Supper would be to realize that it is a reminder of the death of Christ and that sacrificial character of that death, not just that Christ took our punishment, but he also put us in a favorable position with God, because just taking sin once is not enough, is it? You have to put us in a position, otherwise we're just going to sin again, and we'll be right back in the boat that we were in before. So God has justified us and placed us in a position of being justified before the Lord, so he looks at us and he looks through Christ's sacrifice and says, these are my children. And it's a reminder of Christ's offering to the Father on our behalf, which was a past act. It doesn't happen again at communion. Again, not knowing where your background is, in in the fullness of time he came and he bought us. Galatians 4, 4 says, in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 25, it makes the case and uses the sacrificial system as an example. 
Verse 25 says, Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. So speaking of the, the uh, Day of Atonement in, in the lives of, of the year of uh, this year that would come about in, at Israel, in Israel, he, the high priest would go in, offer a bull for the sins of all the people once a year. And, and Hebrews wants to make clear that Christ's sacrifice is not like that. That has to happen over and over again. Otherwise, it says in verse 26, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So as it's taught in other places, of course, that every time you take communion, you really are putting Christ on the cross and he pays for your sin. That's not what happens. We're remembering what happened, but it's already taken place, a once-for-all act, once-for-all death of Christ. Further, it would mean a correct understanding of the symbolism, certainly showing us and our dependence on and our vital connection with the Lord. In Acts chapter uh, 17, verse 28, in him we move, live and move and have our being. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We can certainly recognize those things. Can't we? We've been crucified with Christ. We, we understand that as we take the elements. That becomes our connection with that celebration. Christ lives in you. We know he died and rose. We have been given credit for the death and given credit for the resurrection. And three, it really points forward to Jesus' second coming, that we should live our lives with that in mind, right? That he is going to come, and that he's going to do these kinds of things, and he's gonna, we're going to celebrate that with him. For uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six 26 says, Often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're reminded that that is part of, as we come to the table, understand the importance of the Lord's table, to the life of the believer would be to realize that also it is it's the unity of the believers within the church because we're supposed to model Christ. Uh, it, it, we come all together to the table. It symbolizes our love and our connection to each other, which supersedes our differences. See, the church is the most diverse group on the planet, but we're connected by Jesus to everyone else. In fact, it's appropriate to make sure our relationships with one another are correct before we participate in the table. In fact, that's the main reason why Paul wrote that, that passage. They were celebrating it incorrectly. They were having schisms and difficulties with each other, unforgiveness, backbiting, gossip going on, and they weren't fixing that so they weren't right with the Lord. The Lord's Supper reflects that the, the body is one body. And so if we're not right with one another, we're not right with him. Recognize the presence of Christ. We recognize the benefits of the ordinance. We, rec we understand the importance of the Lord's Supper. And fourthly, uh, we realize that this is an there's an appropriate response by faith that's necessary. So this is, this is the things that those who are faithful do. And what's the, what, what is an appropriate response by faith? In order to receive, because it's not automatic, the positive, objective benefits of a closer walk with Christ, an ability to know him better and love him more, an occasion of recommitment of oneself to the Lord. There has to be a time of self-examination. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, it tells us the main problem, eating the bread and, and uh, drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, not discerning the body of the Lord, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. It would be then a careful ascertaining of our own spiritual condition. Because if the Lord's Supper signifies, at least in part, a spiritual relationship between the individual believer and the Lord, then it would follow that a personal relationship with God is a prerequisite. There's your first one. 
So you're not going to come to the table if you examine yourself and figure out that you're not born again after all because there's no one who could take and celebrate the table and be less worthy of doing it than someone who understands what Christ has done but has not appropriated that for their own sin. And then, of course, number two, those, so those are, have to be genuine believers. And then an appropriate response in faith would be a rigorous self-examination. And so that would include confession of sin, a recommitment to holy living, and as I said at the beginning, I think this is the issue in celebrating the Lord's table. And I think that's what the text indicates. I think it's Paul's main emphasis as we come, we come correctly. And just by way of illustration, it's a very important principle. And you may remember, we went verse by verse through the book of Daniel a number of years ago. Daniel confessed his sin all the time. Even as a teenager, he had the, he had the habit of seeking the Lord out and understanding the Lord and confessing his sin and and um, he was upright, and the Lord recognized that, and he was God's man in the kingdom. But still, there were times in his life, even though this was a regular habit that he had, there were times in his life when great events faced him, when there was a greater sense of, of sinfulness, and he confessed more. And, and that's a very common thing that we, we see in the Old Testament. For example, in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, and you can look at these on your own, it says on the Day of Atonement, which we just spoke about, Yom Kippur, uh, the great day when the sins of all the nations uh, for all the year were atoned for, there was this, this tremendous great confession, uh, not instead of daily confession, but in addition to that, there was this great prostrating themselves before the Lord to be prepared to, to seek this day of atonement and the sins of the people would be atoned for. In Second Chronicles 29.6, when Hezekiah saw God bringing a great revival, there was, in response to that, a tremendous outpouring of confession. Do you remember reading that? In Ezra chapter 9, verse 4, you find it again when God's word revives the hearts of the people in preparation for God's moving in their midst and doing mighty things. There was this great confession that went on in the hearts of the people. And th- these, are not, these are not people who didn't have communion with the Lord before because those who don't love the Lord don't do this at all. This, this is the activity of the faithful. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 9, we see the same thing. Jeremiah 3, 8, and 14, when he cried out about the coming judgment. And again, Lamentations chapter 1, Jeremiah says, God's coming, and because God's coming, you need to prepare yourself by confession of your sins. And so Daniel follows this long, appropriate position of self-examination that we noted at the beginning. Now, we note that that's exactly what happens in Daniel chapter 9, verse 5. And I'm going to put it on the screen, and I want you to read it. And I think it's, it's instructive for us and helpful as we think about Daniel's character and know that he was upstanding in the kingdom, we know the Lord relied on him, we know that he had a good character, um, we know what his habits were of seeking uh, the Lord in prayer, even uh, before difficult times came, you know, when, when Daniel was caught praying three times uh, to the Lord each day, remember, they'd made a rule that he wasn't supposed to do it, and uh, what did he do? He'd cry out to the Lord right then, oh Lord, why am I in such big trouble? No, he just, what did he do? He didn't run around all upset, didn't go to the king and say, hey, you made a bad judgment. As was his habit, the scripture says, he went back and sought the Lord in prayer, as was his habit. And so in chapter 9, verse 5, it's, it, it's, I think it's maybe perhaps surprising that knowing that Daniel wanted to walk with the Lord, that there was this prayer in his life. And I want, to, I want you to uh, just read it silently with me. Here's what he says. We have sinned. Now he doesn't say you've sinned, right? He didn't say they have sinned. What's he say? He owns it, doesn't he? We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we 
have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers and all the people of the land. Yeah, we, we can recognize that, can't we? We understand that. We, we've sinned. We, we share in, in sins, albeit temporarily, with the sins of the world, the ones that our own nation participates in. We share in the sins of the government that currently is in charge, don't we? And we have to admit that. I mean, albeit it's not what we want to do. It's sometimes we fall into it. We confess, but we share, and, and Daniel's quick to point that out. We didn't listen to those who took, spoke your word to us, and we share in the sins of those who rule over us. Then he says in verse 7, he says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. And this is a guy who prayed all the time. This is a guy who wanted to walk with the Lord. It wasn't that he was living openly in sinfulness, and all of a sudden he decided he's coming back. I mean, that certainly would would uh, indicate a time that we would need to prostrate ourselves before the Lord. But this is the guy who walked with the Lord, and listen to what he's saying. As it is to this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby, those who are far away, and all the countries to which you've driven them, because of the, their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, to our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. That's there too. For we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Now, you understand Daniel's background, you understand his regular habit, and you also see what he's doing here. That's confession. Repeatedly speaking of sin, and he owns it, not relative goodness of yourself compared to everybody else. But understanding that you break one law, you've broken them all, right? That's the right heart attitude, see? Repeatedly speaking of sin, owning it, all through the prayer over and over again, comes a confession. In verse 13, he says this. As it's written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. The trouble the Lord has brought on Israel, he said, the chasing that has come from the hand of the Lord is because of our own sin. Not because he's capricious and he's unkind and not because he's doing things we do, you know, that he shouldn't do, but because we deserve it, you see? He understands that the judgment of God has fallen on them because of their disobedience. And he recognizes the importance of repentance. Now, what's he doing? Daniel is, in effect, saying this. We deserve the judgment that we're getting. Agreed. Acknowledged and affirmed. I'm not denying it, Daniel says. Isn't that the same thing Paul's calling for in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He says, you've come and you expected the benefit to be automatic, but it wasn't. Instead, when you celebrated, you were doing it incorrectly. And what's happened? Some are weak, some are sick, and some sleep. So what would have to happen then in order for them to get where they needed to be? They'd have to recognize that they've done it wrong and that the calamity that's on them is a result of their, God's discipline and they want to come back under his blessing. So it's, it's not unusual to see that, is it? I mean, it, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, I think. Repentance is a wonderful thing and confession and repentance have many fruit and one of them is simply acknowledging the sinfulness so that the Lord can purify me and another one is the acknowledgement of my sinfulness so that when God chastens me or is chastening me, I admit that I deserve it. 
And, and we talked about that before a couple weeks ago. Remember, as we talked about hard times, sometimes they come from the Lord's chasing and recognizing that they are coming from him and that we deserve it and that we submit to him so he doesn't have to chasten us is the way the Lord wants us to go because he says when he chastens us, he's proving that we're not cast away with the world, that we're his sons because every, one, every son the Lord loves, he chastens. And daughters, you don't get away with it, okay? He, every son and daughter he loves, he chastens. And three, it's connected to a recommitment to holy living, right? I mean, after you repent and you confess and you, can, and you recognize that the chastening is from the Lord and you recognize that you've sinned and you own it, right? And then you, then you turn, right? That's part, of, that's part of the whole thing. I don't want to do that anymore, see? That's the call to communion, isn't it? To, cl- to clean and to purify from a relationship point of view, from a, a practical living in the world, not from position, you are secure, but practically, you're called to holiness, right? Walk in the Spirit, you'll not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, right? So obviously, there are some choices we can make and some remedy. And as it is true, as in any of those illustrations, when we meet the Lord at the table, should it not also be true? I mean, if we're going to meet with the Lord and He's objectively present, whether or not we feel like He is or not, whether or not we got our heart right before we walked in or we brought in a bad attitude with us and we don't feel like we're worshiping, listen, the Lord is objectively present, the unseen guest, every time we get together, every time you pray, every time you gather with other believers, Jesus is here. So it would seem appropriate then that we come, we recognize the reality of that, and then we get to the business of what we're supposed to be doing as we come to the table, right? If you remember, so I think we should prepare our hearts the same way. If you remember, remember when John the Baptist arrives and he declares the Messiah is coming? Everybody's up there and everybody's like, what do we do? What do we do? The Messiah's coming. What does he tell them to do? Confess and repent and bring forth fruit of repentance, right? Today we're, we're seeking the same God, aren't we? We're coming before the same Lord. We stand in grace, obviously. We are not cast away because of our sinfulness, but the Lord calls us to a closer relationship with him. But it can't be there if we continue to harbor our sin, right? We have to come in the same way. That's, that, it just seems so obvious, right, when we look at it that way. So we gather at the Lord's table. We look at the cross. We see the power of God and his work in grace. We sing about it. Man of sorrows conquer sin and death and hell and we look at the table and we think about the cross and we look at someone on the cross who appears to be a victim controlled by the Romans and the Jews but actually not he's controlling every single thing that's happening on the cross for the specific purpose to reconcile us so we come to the table and we see the cross and we see Jesus' faithfulness. He said he had to go to the cross. He said the Son of Man had to die. He said that he would die. And he goes to the garden and he wrestles with the whole thing. And what happens? He does precisely what he said he would do and kept his promise. And so we come to the table and we see the cross and we see his love because he shouldn't have been there. Say it in your own heart. I should have been there. I own all that. I own that. All of those sins that crucified Christ, that I own those. I should have been there. He took my place. And we come to the table and we look at the cross and we see holiness because 
It's holiness that put him there. He had the price to be paid to deal with sin. So, so what's the appropriate response by faith? What's the activity of the faithful, beloved, in order to receive a closer walk with Christ, an ability to know him better, and to love him more, and walk out more uh, in communion with him than you've ever been, an occasion of recommitment of oneself to the Lord. There has to be, beloved, a time of self-examination, and it's going to include confession and repentance and owning it and meditation on those things because that's the place you find remedy, see. That is the thing Paul's talking about, the main thing. Yes, there were some situational things going on in the church that aren't going on in the New Testament church now because we don't have a fellowship dinner right before the table and nobody's coming and eating their fill and all that. But we can, we can cut through all of that and get to the main principle of it, which is what? You can't come to the table soiled by the world and happy to remain there. See, you come to the table and you have to make remedy. And the Lord says, come and make remedy. Come and I've given you hundreds of examples. Come and do those kinds of things, see. And we're going to do that right at the end, so um, we'll, get, we'll have a chance together to do that. But lastly, before we do that, just so, you know, again, we want to make sure we're, we understand these things. We recognize that the elements we use are only commemorating the Lord's Supper, okay? So you've got them around you, uh, on the chair beside you. In other words, what was represented to Jesus and the disciples in the upper room is what's important. What was represented. It's not the precise circumstances of its initiation that are important. We're not trying to recreate that. Suitability to convey the meaning, okay? Not similarity to the original circumstances. So the elements, don't take matzah bread and break it up with our hands and pass it out. And we don't have a a common cup that we pass around. That's not necessary, is it? The frequency of the observance, right? They celebrated on Passover. We celebrate... Jesus even said, as often as you do it. He doesn't tell us how often. He just says, whenever you do it, do this in what? Remembrance of me. And we talked about that last communion. And can I say, and parents ask this a lot, there is no age qualification to take communion, but the participant should be mature enough to understand and do the things we've talked about. Certainly a child has come to faith, and they're, they're understanding enough to do the things that they should do because that's a childlike behavior which overflows into adult behavior. See? Charles Wesley wrote a hymn. It's one of my favorites. And can it be, it starts like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? What's the answer? Yes. Yes. Died he for me who caused his pain? Even so, yes. For me who him to death pursued by my own sinfulness, my rebellion. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Written by Charles Wesley, 1738. I'd like you to bow your head with me if you would, just a moment as we begin to celebrate the table. And you know that... um, The Bible says you're not to come to the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. We just got through looking at that. So in order to prepare our hearts, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you want to examine yourself. We looked at that from the past. We're going to look at it. We've looked at it just now. We're going to look at it again. You and I desire to meet and commune with the Lord at this table. I think we would all agree with that. The Bible tells us that when we take 
bread, we commune with his body and his blood in the cup. And we, as we do partake of those things, we commune with him in the fullest and most wonderful sense at the very, at the very base, the foundation of our relationship with him, which is his death and resurrection. As we do that, we follow the long, faithful example of saints that have come before in order to prepare our hearts. And so this week, I just kind of wrote down things. This is from my own, my own life. I prayed through this prayer this week. And so I'm going to pray this with you. Just join your heart with mine, and, and I'm not at telling you to repeat these words. But I think that this can be helpful maybe to you, as it was to me as you really begin to ask the right questions and dig in where the Lord wants us to dig in. So we come to the table in a worthy manner. Merciful Lord, please pardon my sins today as I pardon everybody who has sinned against me because I know that there's no forgiveness of what I have committed if I haven't already forgiven those who've committed sins against me. Forgive me for the sins of not doing what you told me to do and the sins of doing the things you've commanded me not to do. Forgive me for sins of sullenness and irritability and grumpiness and being cynical and having a critical spirit and an angry temper. The sins of things that I say and I do and things I have a habit of doing and make all those clear to me so that I can own them and repent because I'm really good at justifying myself and hiding them. Forgive me my, for my sins of hard-heartedness and unbelief and gossip, and pride, and self-righteousness, and every idle word that I say. Forgive me for my sins of unfaithfulness to witness of the gospel to men and women, and my sins of deficiency and a lack of zeal for the ministry that you've given me in each of us. Sins of not seeking your glory, but my own glory. Sins of bringing dishonor on your great name. Sins of deception and injustice and untruthfulness. Just like our own government, I share in all of those. Sins of impurity in thought and in word and deed. And sins of covetousness and sins of hoarding the material things you've given me instead of worshiping you with it by giving it generously. Sins in private and in the family and in study and in recreation. Sins of neglecting your word. Sins of flippant prayer times, irreverently offered, impatiently evaluated, or coldly withheld. Sins in squandered time. Sins in yielding to Satan's temptation offered by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Forgive me of sins of being unwatchful when I know your coming is very soon. 
forgive me for sins of quenching the Holy Spirit in my life and quenching it in the church or in those around me. We own all of these, Lord. We own all of these. We who are called by your name and who know you best, and we agree that we've been chastened individually and as a nation, and we deserve it. Thank you for your great mercy and your grace, or we would be consumed in our own sin. And Father, help us to bring these things to mind and turn from them and whatever else you've brought to our mind in the process and walk in newness of life, seeking how to be pleasing to you. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, whom we want to commune with today and to feel close to and to grow in our relationship with Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. So now as we come to the table, we're ready, right? We're ready. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples come to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, They had no idea what was coming today. They looked at that great redemptive act of God in the past, deliverance from Egypt, and that's what they were going to celebrate. God had a whole other thing for them to begin to focus on, didn't he? Go to the man say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus directed them and prepared the Passover. And now when the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. And this is the part where we normally read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and following standard that God has set. This is the pattern we see through the Word of God. The elements are here to help us remember what it cost and we're to call to our conscious mind then all that Christ did and said and the circumstances and the schisms and the divisions and the discord and the greed and the selfishness and the insensitivity and all of the other things that bog us down so heavily are supposed to be evaluated and confessed and repented of so we can come and have the fellowship he wants us to have but is not automatic by celebrating the table. Judging the body rightly means to correctly evaluate our actions and ask the right questions. I'd like you to take out the bread element that's around you if you would and help your, your child if you need help. It's very hard to get it out. While you're holding that, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3 through 9. The prophet talked about Jesus' crucifixion 700 years before it happened. He's carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he says, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our grief he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through 
We own that, don't we? we? We have to own that. I mean, that's exactly how we were. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each turned to his own way. That's us, right? We own that. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and asked for his generation. Who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? We own that, don't we? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he'd done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we thank you today as we hold this element that represents uh, your great sacrifice for us, the desire very much to commune with you in this, at the most holy, wonderful place where you bought us. We read the prophet's words. We recognize that we have to own all of that. We did not esteem you. We would not have esteemed you had we been there. We would have been in the crowd that were throwing accusations and saying crucify him. We love our sin and we love the darkness too much. And yet you and your great mercy had come even while we were your enemies. Christ came and died for us. And the bread just represents that broken body, stripes that uh, brought us healing. We understand its cost. We come before you now just quietly for a moment to bring those things that you have brought to our mind before you for forgiveness and for repentance. Father, we thank you for your, us able to approach your throne with boldness. We thank you that it is there so we can find forgiveness and remedy. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, I received from the Lord, which I delivered to you. The Lord told him precisely what to say. Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had broken it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread element. Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he'll see his offspring prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for them. Take the cup, if you would, and let's uh, bow again in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for this cup we hold, which uh, represents for us and calls to mind the blood that you, you spilt of your son for our forgiveness without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin 
all the millions of sacrifices that occurred in the Old Testament can tell us one thing, uh, that sin is costly. And no one can pay the cost. We own all of that, Father. We recognize that your son was on the cross in our place. We rightfully deserved it. And thank you that in your great grace, and while we were still your enemies, you died and rose. Thank you that you've drawn us by your Holy Spirit, and those who know you as their Savior know that you have called them, and you have sealed them, and you have made them a promise that you will fulfill when Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and we will follow. And so, Lord, thank you for this cup. Help us call it to mind. Help us to commune with you in the most, in the most holy and foundational way. And we pause again, Father, for just a time of communion with you. Thank you again for your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup, if you would. Verse 26, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember his death and we remember his return. He's going to return and drink the cup with us again. He told his disciples in Matthew 26, 29, I will not drink the cup, fruit of the vine, from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm coming back. You'll see me again. We'll drink this again. Then verse 30 of Matthew 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus went on to fulfill the reason for his birth and his life, pay for our sins with his blood. I'd like you to stand, if you would, and sing, to, sing with me the doxology. If you don't know it, you'll catch on quickly. It's simple. It's simple. 